On Saturday, April 26, 2003, a young man named Aaron Ralston went out to do some solo mountain climbing in the Canyonlands National Park. He went about 30 miles out from the city of Moab in eastern Utah in the American West. He planned, and he always planned very carefully, he planned to drive as far as he could in his truck, then continue on his mountain bike a bit farther, and then finally, after parking his bike, he would begin to climb a particular series of uh, canyons uh, in a slot canyon in particular. A slot canyon is one that is narrow and very deep, and he was really looking forward to this day of climbing. He was 27 years old and a very experienced climber. He already had climbed, he had the experience under his belt of having climbed dozens of mountains, at least a dozen mountains, I should say, over 14,000 feet, and he liked to climb them all by himself, and he especially liked to climb in the winter. That's just about as hard as it gets, but that's what he loved most in the world. He was also part of a climbing rescue team, providing assistance to climbers in trouble, both in winter as well as in the summer. So he was someone who really knew his way around the mountains. He was an engineer by education, but he preferred life in the great outdoors, and in particular, he loved to climb. At 10.30 in the morning, he locked his bike to a tree, and he started the climb toward a place called Horseshoe Canyon. During the initial part of the climb, he met uh, two young women who were also out climbing that day, and they decided they would uh, climb together for a while. So they did. And they climbed up and for several hours, and then the ladies decided they were going to head back, and he wanted to push on and do a little bit more. So they agreed to meet back in Moab and have a drink that night and talk about the day's adventures. In the middle of the afternoon, finally, Aaron Ralston began his descent. He was extremely happy because the day had been perfect. It included everything that he loved most. And as he was coming down this narrow canyon, at one point he came to a passage that was a little difficult, but no more difficult than thousands of others that he had done in his climbing history. He came to a large rock about the size of a truck tire that was jammed between another large rock and the canyon wall on the other side. He decided to use it as a hold uh, as he was going down, so he climbed down onto it and then used it as a support as he was going to uh, let himself down to the floor of the canyon. Then slowly as he did that, the stone, the rock, began to shift, and then it began to roll forward. Quickly realizing that this could be dangerous, he was afraid that the rock might actually fall into him, he pushed forward and turned to the side to allow the big rock to pass next to him uh, so that it wouldn't hit him on the head. And at that point, everything went into a blur. The rock did miss him. It didn't hit him in the head as he was trying to shelter himself uh, from. But when the rock finally stopped rolling, as he had pushed against it, and when the movement finally ended, it was jammed once again against the two sides of the rock canyon, but his right hand was underneath it. It was jammed in between the rock wall and the rock. So his hand was stuck, kind of in a shake hands position, thumb pointing up, and this rock was wedging it up against the wall. Obviously, he immediately tried to pull his hand out from in between uh, this uh, very sticky situation, as we might say, but he found he could not. He was standing on the floor of the canyon, but his hand was a prisoner of the mountain. 
We know, brethren, that Jesus said our first goal must be to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's our number one goal. It's given to us in the scriptures. We understand that that kingdom is one day going to be established here on the earth. And we spend a large part of our lives studying that kingdom and studying what it's going to be like and studying to learn what kind of people we need to be in order to be a part of that kingdom and to serve there. The gospel of the kingdom of God tells us how we can enter that kingdom, how we need to act, what we need to do, how we can, how, what we must do in order to enter it so that we can be a part of that kingdom of God. We learn about what kind of people we need to be becoming day in and day out. And we also know that many scriptures in the Bible tell us that the way to enter the kingdom of God is not the easy way, it's a hard way to go. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, for example, if you want to turn there with me, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26, you probably have some of these different passages floating through your mind as you think about verses that tell us that we have to choose the hard way to enter the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, He who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces, as I, have received from my, as I also have received from my Father. He who overcomes and keeps his works to the end is going to be able to enter the kingdom. Overcoming means effort. We don't talk about overcoming when it's something easy, unless we're joking, maybe. We might talk about, well, I'm going to make a real effort and have that second piece of cake. But we're really joking. It's easy to do that. When we talk about, use a word like overcoming, it's because something is hard. We're having to really make an effort. We're having to do something difficult. And those are the people who are going to get power over the nations. The quote here in verse 27 about a rod of iron, that's actually a quote that comes from Psalms 2, verse 9. And if you check that psalm, you can do that later if you want. It's a psalm of the Messiah. It's a psalm that concerns the establishment of the kingdom of God. So if we want to be a part of that kingdom of God and serve under the Messiah, we must overcome. And that means a struggle. Turn with me also to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. This may be the first passage that came to mind when I mentioned that the way is not easy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many that go in it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. If we're going to enter life and enter the kingdom of God, we've got to choose the narrow way, the difficult way, not the broad way, not the easy way where most people are going. Those who enter the kingdom of God will have shown God that they're willing to choose the narrow way. They're willing to stay on the difficult path in order to enter the kingdom of God. So I believe a suitable question for us to ask ourselves today at this time, but really it's a question we need to be asking ourselves regularly, how deeply do I want to be in the kingdom of God? How strongly do I want to enter the kingdom of God that's going to be established on the earth? And that's what I would like for us to think about a little bit today. 
Turn with me now to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Here's another passage where Jesus talked about choosing the difficult way. Mark chapter 8, we'll start reading in verse 31. Jesus knew what it was like to choose the hard way because his way, the way that he had to follow in his life on earth, was anything but easy. He began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Jesus is explaining to the disciples, he's revealing to them in advance, a small bit of God's plan. His part to play in God's plan in the next few months or years. What he was going to have to do. But in Peter's mind, that wasn't the way things were supposed to work out. Uh, Peter loved Jesus. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Son of God. Surely the Son of God wasn't going to have to go through something like that. And so Peter took his courage in both hands, or maybe he didn't even think about it, and he took it on himself to correct Christ and tell him, no, 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 far be it from you, Lord. No, no, that's, that's not the way things are supposed to work. You don't have to do that. He dared to correct Jesus. Verse 32, he spoke this word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, so he probably made eye contact with all of them that were there. He looked them all in the eye, and then he turned to Peter, and he probably got very serious, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you're thinking human thoughts. You're not mindful of the things of God. You're not looking at this the way God does. You're looking at this as a human being does. And because you're doing it that way, you're becoming an agent of Satan. He's the one that would want me not to do what God wants me to do. And then he continues in verse 34. He called the people to him with his disciples also. He said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus said, Peter, you don't understand the things of God. You only have human thoughts. And brethren, if we don't become capable of understanding the things of God and thinking the things of God, if we only have human thoughts, then we also will end up being, from time to time, agents of Satan because we've got to see things as God sees them. And Jesus told him, if you think to save your life, and that's what Peter was telling him. Peter was saying, no, save your life. There must be a way for you not to have to do this. And Jesus said, no, you you can't care about your life more than you care about God's will. Save his life. That was the temptation that Peter was transmitting. Save your life, Jesus. You don't have to die. But Jesus explains that only those who really, truly, fully give their lives to God can receive what God wants to offer them, eternal life. And what can we put on a scale 
against eternal life. Is there anything worth that? And then Jesus said, if there is anything that can make us ashamed of God or the truth of God, then we ourselves will be subjects of shame in a much more serious way. So I come back to the question, how deeply do we want to enter the kingdom of God? How important is that to us? Stuck in the mountain, Aaron Ralston immediately pulled out a knife from his day pack, and he began with his left hand pounding on the rock that was imprisoning his right hand. He beat on it for several hours until he finally came to the conclusion that that rock was simply too hard to be broken with the tools he had available. So he was an experienced climber. He knew the mountains. He began to think things through. He knew he'd have to find a solution very quickly because he only had 22 ounces of water. And he knew from experience that he would need about a gallon a day to be able to survive in the mountains. So he estimated that he had about three or four days before he would die of dehydration. He hoped that the young women who had agreed to have a drink with him that night would note his absence in the evening and send help. And finally, as night fell on that first, the end of that first day, he took ropes out of his pack and he rigged a sling harness so that he could sit because he was, the way he was wedged in between the rock and the, and the mountain, he could not, uh, he had to remain standing. So he rigged up some ropes where he could make a sling for himself and he could sit for a short period of time. He found that he could sit for about 20 minutes before losing the circulation in his legs and then he'd have to stand up again. But that's what he did, standing and sitting, and he could snatch a little bit of sleep sometimes while he was sitting, and then he would stand and allow the circulation to return to his legs. And that's how he spent his first frigid night. Other days and nights would follow, and he became more desperate as time passed. Jesus often used the phrase, carrying one's cross. He said, you must take up your cross and follow me. And that is an analogy or an image that he used a number of times. And, of course, he used that before his crucifixion. And he knew that he was going to have to carry a cross one day. When he used that expression, it had a great deal of meaning to him because he knew one day he actually physically was going to carry his own cross in order to fulfill God's will. He used that image to indicate to his disciples the level of commitment that is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. And he used that expression several times. I'm sure you can think of some examples. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Here's one of those examples. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. A great, a great multitudes, rather, went with him, and he turned and said to them. There were always crowds of people following Jesus around because really interesting things happened wherever he was. First of all, he said amazing things that made people kind of scratch their heads. It was wonderful to hear. They didn't always understand it, but it's just a, an amazingly gracious discourse that he had. And sometimes he would feed thousands of people with fish or bread, and it was just incredible. There would be sometimes miracles, healings that happened. So there were always people following Jesus. But at this point, he turned around and he said, if you really want to be my followers, if anyone comes to me, if you really want to be a Christian, one of my disciples, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we understand that we're not actually to hate our parents or our family members, but the love we have for them and should have for them must be so small in comparison for the love that we have for God, or rather that love must be so much greater that he uses this extreme language. You've got to hate them. There can be no comparison in the love you have for them and in the love you have for me. And verse 27 says, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You've got to bear your cross. Let's continue. Verse 28, For which of you... Intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace." So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We know from other passages and from the examples we see in the New Testament, that doesn't mean we have to give away everything we have except one suit of clothes in order to be a disciple. But it means if we had to choose between keeping some of our stuff or being a Christian, we would choose the Christian way. Even it cost us everything that we had. That's the commitment that has to be made. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If Christians ever lose those unique qualities that make them Christians, they are useless. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does it mean to bear our cross? I think there are at least two meanings we can give to that. We bear our cross in the sense of carrying with us the memory of our symbolic deaths at baptism. The Bible tells us we're crucified with Christ through baptism. And so at baptism, uh, we were on a cross, spiritually speaking, by analogy. And we've got to bear that cross with us. We've got to carry with us all the time the memory, I don't belong to myself anymore. I've been bought with a price. I belong to God. So I don't have the right anymore to live just any old way I feel. I must live for him who bought me. And of course, it also means we must be willing to bear any burden necessary or put up with any difficulty that might come along, any unpleasantness that could be occasioned by our obedience to God. That also is bearing our cross. Both of those things are true. I remember a young woman who had grown up in the church, this is years and years ago, in France, She began exhibiting certain behaviors that violated the law of God. She wasn't baptized, but uh, she came to church with her parents, young adult. And I had to talk to her about it because it was getting to be a problem in the congregation. And I explained to her that her her behavior was starting to cause problems. It was uh, becoming an issue for people. They knew what she was doing, and it wasn't right. And that if she wanted to continue coming to services, she was going to have to make some changes. Otherwise, if she didn't, um, we'd have to ask her not to come. And she became very angry with me as I told her this, as gently as I knew how to do. How could I, who was I, to tell her she couldn't come to church? Then I explained, well, there is a certain 
minimum behavior required if you want to be here among the people of God. There are some outrageous things that just have no place in church. And the church is instructed to make sure that doesn't happen in the church. And I always remember the reply that she gave me. She looked at me and she said, Well, if you can't do what you want, it's not worth it. If you can't do what you want, it's not worth it. Ah, there's the rub, right? In the church of God, to be Christians, to enter the kingdom of God, we can't just do whatever we want. Because that's not being a disciple of Jesus. He said, deny yourself. Bear your cross. Love me more than anything else in the world. Matthew chapter 7, I think, is interesting in this context. Because there's a confusion in some people's minds today in the world's Christianity, there are a lot of people who think they're doing a lot of things for Jesus. They think they're doing a lot of things for God. And they imagine they're going to have a great reward for that at some point in the future. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. It's not enough to call me Lord. It's not enough to say you're going to obey me. (laughs) You have to do the will of my Father. My Father in heaven. Now look at verse 22. Many, not just a few, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We preached you. Cast out demons in your name. And done many wonders in your name. Look at all we did for you. Look at all the good things we did in your name. And then I will declare to them, he said in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They were doing some things for Jesus or for God. They were preaching. They were doing wonders. They were casting out demons, apparently. But they were living in a lawless way. They weren't obedient to God's instructions and to his law. So apparently many people at the return of Christ, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, look at all these things we did for you. And he's going to say, that's not what I asked you to do. You decided to do something else. You needed to do what we wanted you to do, what the Father and I wanted you to do. That's why in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4, there's a very interesting word that's used for those who are going to be with Jesus at his return. Revelation 17, I'm sorry, verse 14, I think I said 4, verse 14. We have an interesting description of those who are with Christ at his return. It talks about the beast and the kings that are going to make war with Jesus at his return. These will make war with the Lamb, the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him, the resurrected saints who come with the Messiah at his return are called, chosen, and faithful. Those are three absolute requirements to be with Christ at his return. The calling, that's God who does that. No one can come to me except the Father who is with me draws him, Jesus said in John 6, 44. The chosen, those who are chosen, are those who respond to God, who say, I understand, and yes, I accept. Yes, I want to put my life in your hands. That's, the part that, that's our response to God. But then comes the third part. Faithful. That means remaining in the right way and continuing in our obedience and submission to God. 
faithful. You've got to carry it out all the way to the end. That's an echo of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, where Jesus sent a message to the messenger of the church of Smyrna, and he said, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. We've got to carry through and be faithful all the way to the end of our lives. So I ask the question again, how deeply do we want to enter the kingdom of God? If I ask you, do you want to enter the kingdom of God? You would say, yes, of course. If not, we wouldn't be here. We want to be in the kingdom of God. We wouldn't be here if we didn't. But at the same time, have you ever known someone who said yes to God and carried on for a while and really wanted to be in the kingdom of God and then for some reason stopped? They quit? They decided it wasn't worth it for some reason. I think we've all known people who have done that. Now, we hope and pray for God's mercy. It's not uh, all written. The story's not over for many of those people. But what caused someone who really wanted to be in the kingdom to suddenly decide it's not worth it? Is it fatigue? Confusion? Discouragement? Anger? I think any of those things can make people change their minds and decide it's not worth it. It's happened many times. That's why I think it's important for us to ask ourselves the question and really think about it. How deeply do I want to be in the kingdom of God? After six days in the mountain on May 1st, Aaron Ralston was still alive. He'd survived the thirst and the cold nights, But his right hand at this point was badly infected, and it smelled rotten. I won't get into all the details. They're pretty graphic. You can read the book if you want to. I'll give you the references at the end. But he finally found the means of using the leverage of his weight to actually break both both, uh, bones in his right arm and the lower part of the arm. He managed to break them. And then... He used the tools that he had to cut off his right hand. And he actually did that. Why? Because he wanted to live. He cut off his own right hand to escape certain death. And he did escape death. He survived to tell the story. He freed himself at the cost of his right hand. He applied a tourniquet as best he could... He began climbing down the mountain as quickly as he could, stopping only to drink rainwater from puddles formed in rocks. After a grueling descent of two and a half hours, with, uh, with his arms still bleeding, and that included long, repelling drops, he finally met a family of hikers that sent for help. The authorities had been alerted already by family members that he was lost, so a helicopter was standing by. It arrived quickly to airlift him to the hospital, and he survived. Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, often used very striking language, extreme analogies, to underscore how deeply we must want to enter the kingdom of God. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, we have the passage that motivated me to use the example of Aaron Ralston in the sermon today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27.
Matthew 5:27 You have heard that it was said of those of, to those of old you shall not commit adultery the physical act but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman, woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart and verse 29 it's serious enough this question that if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If anything gets in the way of your commitment to God, get it out of your life. It's a question of life and death. Aaron Ralston did a thing that probably amazes all of us here. He really did this physically. To save his life, he cut off his right hand. He took extreme action to save his physical life. We must be prepared, brethren, to take extreme action to save our spiritual lives under God's guidance and his supervision. Turn over to Matthew 18 now, if you would. Matthew chapter 18. Here's another place where he uses the same kind of analogy, the same very striking, extreme language to make his point. Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown, drowned in the depths of the sea. I don't know if you've ever seen a millstone. In Capernaum, in Israel, they've got several examples out on display. They're big, massive things. There's no way you're swimming with one of those around your neck. It's a quick trip to the bottom of whatever body of water you go into. He said that would be better than to offend one of these little ones who believe in me. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. It's going to happen. It's part of life. It's part of this world we live in. Offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. It's serious. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. We really see two things in this passage. If something causes you to sin, you've got to get it out because we must stop sinning. We've got to stop sin in all its forms and replace it with love and obedience to God. That's a a huge part of our life's mission. And the second thing that we've got to avoid here, according to this passage, is to avoid offending little ones. And in that sense, we're all little ones. We have to be careful that we don't give offense to any of our brethren in the church, that we love our brothers and sisters as we love ourselves. In our relationships with each other as members of the body of Christ, the church of God, we must consider ourselves to be Siblings, brothers and sisters. And in some ways, we need to be, think of ourselves as older brothers and sisters. And in some ways, we need to think of ourselves as younger brothers and sisters. We need to think of ourselves as younger brothers and sisters to our brethren in humility. Knowing that we need to be guided. We need to accept guidance. We can get good advice. 
and think about it. Not to think that we're stronger or smarter than others. We want to be easily entreated, ready to call ourselves into question, ready to submit to one another, as a younger sibling would do. But we also need to think of ourselves as older siblings with a desire to protect, to watch out and care for each other, to be protective of one another. That's also part of our responsibility. Now let's get some clarification of something in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, we'll start in verse 18. This helps us understand that the extreme language that Jesus was using was not meant to be taken actually literally. We're not actually going to be plucking out eyes or cutting off arms because that's not where the problem comes from. Matthew, Matthew, sorry, 15 verse 18, yes. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they are what defile a man. It's not our eye or our foot or our hand that makes us sin. It's what happens in our hearts. It's what happens in our minds and our attitudes and what we have down deep inside, the essence of who we are. Verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. It's not the physical things. It's not the eye. It's not the hand. It's not the foot. It's what we have and allow in our thoughts, in our hearts. Those are the things that defile us, and those are the things that need to be cut out if necessary. The wrong attitudes, the wrong desires, those are the things, and we must act promptly. Aaron Ralston didn't have the time to wait around and say, well, you know, I'm going to wait maybe a couple of weeks and I'll see if this is really required. He knew there was a time limit on it had to be done now if he wanted to save his life. We've got to be ready to act and eliminate whatever it might be if we want to enter the kingdom of God. Anything that could be an obstacle to our walk with God. When we consider the context of Matthew 5 and Matthew 15, 18, where Jesus spoke of cutting off a limb, we see certain specific traps that are mentioned, used in that context, context of cutting off a hand or cutting off an arm or plucking out an eye. You can read that again later. I'm not going to take the time to reread the passages. But I would just list for you a couple of things that are mentioned specifically in the passages that we read. In Matthew 5, where it talks about uh, taking up our cross or uh, what we have to do in order to follow uh, Christ, I should say, he talks about getting rid of anger. That can destroy us. He talks about disdain, feelings of superiority toward other people. He said you can't call your brother a raka. You can't call him an idiot or stupid or unworthy. That kind of attitude must be removed from our lives. A refusal to accept the instructions God gives us, specifically things about sex, that's mentioned. If you look at a woman to lust for her, you've got to stop doing that. And if your eye causes you to offend you, <laughs> pluck it out. You've got to stop looking that way. Or a desire for vengeance. I'll right those wrongs, an eye for an eye. You do that to me, I'm going to do it back to you. That's a sinful attitude that must come out of our lives. In Matthew 15, we just saw 
It's a question of scandalizing one of our brothers or sisters in Christ, discouraging them or shocking them to the point where they think, there's something wrong here, I, I'm, I can't continue in this. That's a very weighty responsibility in God's eyes. To scandalize a little one, to disdain or have disrespect for other brethren, that's mentioned in Matthew 15. And then a refusal to repent, that's mentioned also. A refusal to forgive and accept the repentance of somebody else. The, refu- the refusal to accept someone's uh, desire to make amends to us and to keep bitterness between us. In preparation for this sermon, I sent an email to some of our really long-time pastors who've got many decades, 30, 40, 50 years in the ministry. And I asked them what they've observed in their experience over the years that caused people to leave the way of God? What was it that finally made them say, I'm not going to do this anymore? It's not worth it. And these are some of the answers that I got back. Wounded pride. Wounded pride, especially if our pride's been wounded by somebody in the church. The attitude is, if they treat me that way, I'm leaving. And that's taken people out of the church. Misused sexuality. Outside of marriage, a marriage not conducted according to biblical instructions, or if the marriage relationship becomes more important than our relationship with God. That's the other extreme. That's taken people out of the church. Greed has taken people out of the church, out of the way that leads to the kingdom of God. The desire for more, the desire to have more than what we have a right to have. Pride in thinking that we have a better understanding of some doctrine than other people do. I get this. They don't get it. That puts me on a higher plane than they are. We can't walk together anymore. That's taken people out of the church. Or to take as an excuse the weakness of someone in a responsible position at the church. Well, if that guy made that mistake, then I can fill in the blank. And that eventually has taken people out of the church as well. The really most important question, though, is what would it be for you? And I have to ask, what might it be for me? Is there anything out there that could make us give up on our commitment to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Is there something out there that could make us angry enough or discouraged enough or hurt enough, or whatever, to give up on the way that leads to eternal life? Is there anything that we wouldn't be willing to cut out of our lives in order to be in the kingdom of God? Really important question for us to ask ourselves and to think about. Aaron Ralston survived. He survived because he was willing to cut off his right hand. His life was saved only because of that extreme sacrifice. I think that's a very striking example of a love of life. And he said in his book, I wanted to live. I have more things I want to do. The will to exist. His story, of course, was quite famous here in the U.S. It was in the news. I remember hearing about it vaguely. I didn't actually read the story in detail till later, but I remember vaguely when it was in the news. During his long convalescence in the hospital, he received letters from people, lots and lots of letters, who'd been touched by his story. 
And he shares a couple of those in, the, in his book. One that I found quite striking was a woman from Salt Lake City who wrote him. And she wrote that she had just flushed a stockpile of her deceased husband's sleeping pills down the toilet. This is what she wrote in her letter. Your act of bravery has inspired me to hold on more clearly, more dearly, I'm sorry. I had promised myself that I would end my life if things had not gotten better one year after my husband's death. I know now that suicide is not the answer. You inspire me to stay strong, remain brave, and to fight for life. And Aaron Ralston writes in his book that he and his family weep every time they read that note. They read it from time to time. Uh, His book's called 127 Hours Between a Rock and a Hard Place. You probably know that it was made into a movie not too long ago. His example struck many people. It is powerful. How can you not be struck by the example of someone who will personally cut off his own arm in order to stay alive? But I would submit to you, brethren, that there's another example that's even more powerful than that. I'm talking, of course, of the example of Jesus Christ. His example shows the way not just to a few more decades of physical life on earth here, But he shows us the way to eternal life in the kingdom of God. And he set the example on what we need to do to be able to receive that wonderful gift from God. Philippians chapter 2 talks about that. Let's go there. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We've seen earlier that it's what comes out of our minds or our hearts that can defile us. Now, here's the kind of mind we need to have instead. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, something to be held on to at all costs, to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, about as disagreeable way to die as human beings have imagined. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have a big responsibility in working out our salvation, in in continuing to do what we need to do, in not giving up when the road gets narrow and difficult. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. That's going to get harder in this world because there's more and more murmuring and disputing over just about everything that happens. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If we abide in Christ, then we can have that mind. God will help us to have that same mind, a mind that's willing to sacrifice, a mind that's willing to take the hard way, the difficult way, in order to fulfill God's will. John 15 also, please. John 15.
Starting in verse 5. John 15, 5. A passage we know well. Read it at Passover time every year, I believe. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them in the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. If we abide in Christ, and his words abide in us, we're thinking about them, his words are guiding our actions and guiding our lives, then we can ask the help of God. We can ask for his strength, and he says he will give it. And he'll make it possible for us to deny ourselves. Because that's not an easy thing to do. We need help to be able to do that. We need help to be faithful to God. Called and chosen and faithful all the way to the end of our lives. But all that starts, brethren, with the will, the burning desire to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' example is going to inspire us throughout all eternity. And perhaps to a much lesser degree, our examples will be of encouragement to others. This is already the case now. Some of our brethren who go through very difficult trials, and they do so with confidence and faith, even when they're suffering, that's an inspiring example. Some of you are doing that now. And your examples are an inspiration to those around you. Our examples can do that for each other. One more thing I'll share with you about Aaron Ralston's book and an analogy with the things we've been looking at in the Bible today. Something struck me at the end of his book. Now looking backward with a few years in between the accident and what happened and the reconstruction, all the pain and difficulty he went through, but also knowing the impact that his story, his example had on other people, knowing what he learned about himself, knowing the encouragement that he brought to others. He states that if he were back down there on the ground, about to begin that climb, knowing what would happen, knowing that he would end up having to cut off his right arm and going through the rest of his life without that hand, knowing all the pain that he would have to go through, because of the impact it had on other people for good, he writes he would do the climb again, even knowing what would happen because he feels more good has come out of that than the bad of the pain that he had to endure. In spite of the fear and the pain and the suffering at the time, as hard as it would for him to believe it at the time, he says it was worth it. I believe, brethren, that throughout eternity, when we look back on this life, and we look back on the times that were really hard when we felt like we were just hanging on by our fingernails, when things got confusing and when they got painful and when we didn't understand why certain things were happening. I believe we're going to look back on this life and say, that was worth it. If I had to do it all over again, I would do it. Absolutely. It hurt at the time, but it was worth it. But to arrive there, to be able to look back on this life from thousands of years into the future and reminisce about all this, we must now in this life at this time ask and answer the question, how deeply 
And how strongly do I want to enter the kingdom of God? And our answer must be, more deeply, more strongly, more powerfully than anything else.